Welcome to the Renaissance Podcast, and thank you for joining with us to worship and learn more about God. We are so excited to have you be a part of this week's service. For more podcasts and services from past weeks, or to join us online on Sunday mornings, check out the Church at Home page at rendicator.org. Now, enjoy the message. My name is Silas Idol, and I'm going to read a passage from Luke, Luke 2, verse 41 through 52. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the Feast of the Passover, and when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His His parents did not know it, but supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey, but but then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Thank you. The, the feast was Passover. It's how Luke begins this story about Jesus. It was a feast that the faithful Jewish people celebrated to commemorate and to remember how God had saved their people, how God had saved them when they were enslaved in Egypt some 1,400 years prior to this story. If you know the story, it's Moses. He goes before the wicked king Pharaoh and he says these words, let my people go. God wants his people to worship him in the desert. And Pharaoh continually said, no, I'm keeping the Hebrew people as slaves. I own them. And Moses would go back and ask for God's people to be released. And Pharaoh kept saying no. And so a series of plagues would come upon the people of Egypt. The final plague was coming and God had promised that the destroyer was going to come and he was going to take the firstborn child of the unfaithful. And just as God had promised, the night came, the next morning, the sorrow and the weeping among the nation of Egypt erupted and finally exasperated, Pharaoh relented and let God's people go. They were no longer slaves. I find it ironic possibly that this Passover, the very thing that Joseph and Mary had just celebrated in Jerusalem, where they remember how God delivered them, but he, they remember how God delivered them by taking the firstborn sons of the unfaithful. I wonder if that's not playing in the back of their mind as they're leaving Jerusalem and they've lost their son. But for a moment, do Mary and Joseph step into that 
feeling that I'm sure all of those people in Egypt felt those many years prior. You know, it's a phrase no parent wants to hear at all. It's we've searched everywhere and we cannot find your child. In the United States alone, every year, 800,000 children, 800,000 children go missing. Now, most all of those are just simple misunderstandings. Mom wandered away from their child, or child wandered away from their kid, and most all of them, they're, they're returned back to their parents. A lot of them are actually custody disputes between a mom and a dad who are separated, and typically the courts get involved and the child is returned. But every once in a while, it'll break into the news that a child has been taken and it doesn't have a happy ending. I wonder if that's not what Mary and Joseph are thinking. To leave Jerusalem to travel down to Nazareth is to go through some wilderness area. And there were lots of wild animals. There's lots of places a child could fall and, and get hurt and disappear maybe forever. And we don't know exactly what they're thinking, but they are certainly scared. As the ground beneath Mary begins to feel like it's shaking, she finally catches her breath rather, and she shouts for her husband, Joseph. And she says these words, we guess, but I thought he was with you. I thought he was with you. The caravan, when it would leave Jerusalem, they would put the women and children first. They set the pace of how quickly this group would travel. The men hung out in the back. And so it'd be a simple mistake for Mary just to presume that, J that Jesus was in the back with the men. I mean, he is 12 years old at this age. In fact, the Hebrew people would believe that that Jesus is stepping on the threshold of becoming a man. At age 13, he would have his bar mitzvah and he would be a full man. So there's the assumption that Jesus is just traveling in the back of the pack with the men, but he's not there. Joseph maybe would have assumed that Jesus would just be traveling amongst the group, that he might be hanging out with the men, he might be traveling up with the, the women and children. He was becoming a young man on his own. And Joseph possibly even thought, boy, this boy really is showing some growth and some maturity lately. It's nice to see when children show that maturity and growth. Maybe Joseph even thought this kind of reminds him of the story of a shepherd boy, a young shepherd boy who grew to be king. David, you might know the story from the Hebrew Bible or the Old Testament. And Joseph is considering that young child who protected his father's flock at a young age, the same age that Jesus is. He would protect the flock against lions and bears. He would protect the sheep. He would think that David would show his father, Jesse, that he was strong and capable to save his lambs. Assumptions and accusations fling back and forth between Mary and Joseph. And it's in situations like this that when a, a child goes missing, that blame is a course served family style. Everyone tastes its bitterness. But now they must find Jesus. And so they return. They travel a full day. They've traveled a full day away from Jerusalem. They, it's about a four-day journey down to Nazareth, but they've gone a day before they noticed that Jesus was missing. It wasn't until that evening where they broke camp or set up camp, rather, to spend the night to cook dinner that they finally realized that Jesus wasn't there. And so there's nothing they can do in the middle of the night. They cry out his name. We're certain of it. Luke doesn't tell us that, but we're certain of it, that they're looking for Jesus as best they can, but they can't wander too far from everyone else. It's dangerous. So at first light, they break camp to travel back to Jerusalem, which is another day's journey. 
So now Jesus is gone two days and they're looking in every crevasse, they're every crag in the rock. They're looking for remains of maybe an animal and they're not wandering too far from their own group because they know it's a dangerous place. They finally get to Jerusalem and look for Jesus everywhere they could possibly look and still can't find him. They go to bed that night, still sorrowful that Jesus is missing. And Luke tells us on the third day, back in Jerusalem, after Jesus had been missing for three days, they finally find him. The exhausted parents finally find Jesus after he'd been missing for three days. And the story, and this is what I love, and the story of where they found him and what Jesus said to them is, ins is inspirational to us. It is something that I want to spend the next few moments together sharing with you. Verse 46. Let's go back to the passage that Luke gives us. It says, verse 46, that after three days they found him, Jesus, in the temple. That he was sitting among the teachers. The teachers in this context would be fellow rabbis. Uh, a lot of the men and people of uh, Israel would travel to Jerusalem to celebrate the feast of Passover and stay for the Feast of Unleavened Bread afterwards. And so many times they would even linger after a few days after this and they would hang out in the temple and they would talk theology. They would talk, you know, shop, so to speak. These rabbis, these learned teachers, these PhDs of the law of Moses, so to speak. And these teachers are in um, the temple and Jesus is found sitting among them and Luke tells us that he's listening to them and he's asking them questions. <laughs> I love this. And all who heard Jesus were amazed at his understanding and his answers. It sounds like they would ask Jesus some questions too. A little 12-year-old boy answering questions of these PhD scholars. Um, just by context, as an aside, but I did not know this when I asked Silas to come up and read the passage, but I, he told me today that he turns 12 in April. So he's right at that age that Jesus would have been sitting in the temple, speaking to the rabbis and answering their questions. That's impressive, yes? You should meet Silas, by the way. He's amazing as well. So they find him in the temple. The temple that we're talking about in Jerusalem is the second temple. Israel had a temple once before, but it had been destroyed some 600 years prior because Israel had been disobedient to God and God allowed the Babylonians, a, a neighboring nation, to come in and destroy Jerusalem, destroy the temple, and scatter God's people. Several generations later, God's people migrated their way back to Jerusalem and they started to rebuild a second temple temple, but it was by no means as impressive as the first one that Solomon had built. The second one was smaller. It wasn't as, as big. It, was, it didn't look as nice. In fact, many people mocked this second temple. It just didn't look like a place that God would want to spend time in. Over the generations, many people would renovate this second temple. Enter King Herod, the great builder. This is the story of Jesus. King Herod is alive during this time, and he decides to take it upon himself to renovate the second temple, and he does so with force. Herod builds the temple, makes it huge. It is a very large structure spanning some 40 acres in the city of Jerusalem. The temple was the focus of Jewish life. They believed, as we would, that God dwelt in the heavens. Yes? Yes, the answer is yes to this. Yes. God dwelt in the heavens and man dwelt on the earth. But in Jerusalem, on the mount that the temple was built 
It was considered to be a special place because they believed it was the place that the heavens and the earth intersected, where they crossed paths. And at the very top of this mountain sat the temple, and inside the court sat a room, and inside the room was another room, a very special room called the Holy of Holies. And it was believed by God's people that God himself dwelt there. So if you wanted to spend time with God, you, you, you pilgrimaged to the temple. If you wanted to minister to God, you went to the temple where God was. And this is where the priests would gather and they would offer sacrifices for the people and they would burn incense on God's behalf to symbolize the prayers going up before God. This was a special place. And if there's one place that you would think you would find Jesus the boy, doesn't it make sense that he would be found in the temple? Now think about this. In all of scripture, this is the only recorded instance that we have of Jesus as a child. Only Matthew and Luke record his birth. Luke gives us more details than even Matthew does, but nobody gives us any details about his childhood. So this one snapshot at age 12, when Jesus goes missing after the Passover, Luke is telling us that he's at the temple, that he's found at the temple. And you and I, knowing what we know, that this was a miraculous birth, that, that Jesus is the son of God, it's starting to connect with us, isn't it? Of course, Jesus would be in the temple. That's exactly where we would expect him to be. But his parents were quite upset that he had been missing for three days. Verse 48, and so when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to Jesus, and moms, you could infer the tone that Mary used here, but you can imagine how this sounded to, to young Jesus. But she said, son, why have you treated us like this? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. Boy, when you get home, I'm just saying. I'm just, I'm picturing it. I don't know. Luke doesn't say we're picturing it. Take notice that Mary doesn't even mention Joseph's name. Side note, this is just extra credit, if you will. But Joseph's not mentioned in this by name at all. In verse 41, it just says parents, Mary and Joseph. Verse 43, they use the word parents. Verse 48 uses the word they and your father and I. Joseph isn't even mentioned by name. In fact, tradition tells us that, um, well, I'll say this. Joseph's never mentioned in scripture after this moment. Tradition would tell us that Joseph dies sometime hereafter. We believe that Jesus goes back to Nazareth at age 12 and lives for another 18 years until age 30 before he begins his ministry, that Joseph died sometime in that span. We don't know when exactly, but we know that he raised Jesus as his own son. Culturally, he had all the rights of an earthly father. He raised him, he taught him the family trade. He taught him carpentry or stonemasonry, whatever we think that is. And he taught him all those things, but at some point Joseph died. And why is that? Because we never hear his name again. In fact, at the cross of his crucifixion, we see Mary, his mother and some other people, but Joseph is missing. So the assumption is that he has died. But Mary's query to, to Jesus um, has an implication in it that Jesus had been disobedient. This is what I need us to focus on. She said, son, where have you been? Don't you know you have troubled us? Your father and I have been looking for you. Why would you do this? And the, again, the implication is that Jesus had been disobedient to them. 
But Jesus' response tells us that he had not been disobedient, but rather he had been obedient to his father, but to his heavenly father. And this is where it gets real good for us. Verse 49, Jesus responds to them, why are you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? So she responds, where she queries him, she says, your father and I've been looking for you. And he responds with my father in heaven. This is, this is special for us because at the age of 12, we're getting the impression that Jesus is, is sensing a divine call and a divine understanding of his purpose and is beginning to understand who his real father is. And this is not to diminish Joseph. Joseph was loved and did everything that God asked him to do. But Jesus is now beginning to understand that his calling and his life has a bigger purpose. And he uses those declarative words, I must. These are words that are oftentimes on Jesus' mouth. Luke chapter four, it said this, that Jesus said, I must preach. Luke chapter nine, the son of man must suffer. John chapter three, the son of man must be lifted up. Jesus would repeatedly say these words, I must, which tells us that it shows even at a young age, he has this divine compulsion to do the father's will. Look at me. He is 12 years old and he is so compelled to do what God asks him to. It would even cause him to stay behind while his family leaves that he has a compulsion to do God's work. Secondly, it teaches us this, that it reveals that even at this young age that Jesus was aware of who his real father was and had at least a basic understanding of his purpose and calling. Did I mention Silas is almost 12 years old? Right, April, right? Let's go. At that age, he... God can speak to a child and let them know that he has a purpose and a plan for their life. And parents, I need you to hear that. I would, I would even argue at an earlier age than that, kids can begin to understand that God is calling them to be someone and to do something. And as parents, one of the, 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 the responsibilities of us is to shepherd them and lead them into that calling or that divine purpose. I said this last week, and I've said it many times in this church, the children of Renaissance, we believe they do not get a junior version of Jesus. There's no kids, Holy Spirit, no Happy Meal-sized God of anything, that they get the fullness of who God is just as we do. And if they are connected to him in prayer, and if they've been trained up to be holy and to, to serve God, that God will begin to speak to them even in grade school. Isn't that profound? And this is what we're learning from this story. There's a parallel story in the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, of a special son that's being born. In fact, Luke, if you're paying attention back in the birth narrative of Luke chapter one, Luke alludes to this story, and I'll give you some details. There's a woman named Hannah and her husband Elkanah, or Elkanah, they were barren. They did not have children. And she desperately wanted a child. And she would oftentimes go to the tabernacle. Think of like the temple, but in the desert. It's like a portable temple. But she would go to the tabernacle where God was and she would pray often for a child. 
And, and she would pray so fervently and with such emotion that Eli, who was the priest at the time, he used to think she was drunk, just babbling because she's praying and crying. I just want a child. I want a child. And so when Eli comes to her, she says, I'm not drunk. I just want a child. And I'm telling you, Eli, if the, if the Lord would give me a son, I will dedicate him to the Lord. And if you know the story, she does get a son. Hannah gets a son. His name is Samuel. And she keeps her promise. When Samuel is about four years of age, after he was weaned from his mother, she takes him to the, the tabernacle and she leaves him with Eli the priest so that he can raise him up and so that God can use him. I just wonder if we don't think in, for a moment, since Luke is leading us this way, if, we don't, if we're not expected to believe that maybe they're going to leave Jesus at the temple too. Luke is inferring the story. He used some of Hannah's prayer language in Elizabeth's prayer language. There's some parallels there. You can do all that study on your own. But we, the reader, are supposed to believe, I wonder what they're going to do now that they found Jesus. I wonder if they'll just leave him there. Doesn't that make sense to us? He is God's son after all, and all the spiritual work and all the training, right, of a godly person that happens at the temple, he'll just stay there. But what do we read? It's not what happens. Parents, sit up straight, please. Pay attention, please. God uses us to train up the children. We have the responsibility and the role. And we see that given to us in the story when it says in verse 51, and so he went down with them and he came to Nazareth and he was submissive to them. And his mother, she treasured up all of this stuff that had taken place, the temple and the, the PhDs of the law were like amazed at his teaching and all that. And it says, verse 52, that Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. And my question to you is, how did he learn to do that? With his parents. Ha. Ha. Sometimes we think it's just you know, we get to have fun, have kids, and we let God do all the stuff. Or better yet, here's my favorite thing. Don't throw things at me, please. Um, or whatever. Um, we'll just take our kids to church and let the church do the learning about the spiritual stuff. Anyone? Any, oh, no? Okay. I thought this was Family Sunday. I thought I'd get a gasp and a, right? Maybe conviction's falling on some of you. I don't know. I don't care, honestly. But here's, here's what I know, that we as parents, we have responsibility. We as a church have responsibility for sure. If nothing else, we're babysitting your kids for an hour so you can worship on Sunday in some quiet space if you want. That's fine. But the, but the tutelage of your children and the things of the spirit belong to you. It is not just your responsibility. I would argue it is your honor to do so. I want to share a story of what this, uh, a personal story of what this might look like in our lives. So I have two daughters. They're amazing, right? One's 21 in a few weeks. So Silas has a birthday coming up, but my oldest daughter has a birthday coming in a couple weeks. She turns 21 and my youngest is 19. My younger one, when she was in grade school, her name is Reagan. She was this is going to sound so negative to say, and I don't know how else to say it, but when she was younger, she was just so sweet. <laughs> if you know her, you're like, yeah, I get it. Um, she was so tender towards others. She had a, a, a young boy in, I think, her second or third grade class. 
that was maybe on the spectrum. I'm not 100% sure, but, but he, was, he was never caught up with his math like everyone else was. And because he wasn't caught up on his work, some of the other kids would tease him and make fun of him. And he was sometimes picked on at recess. And, and Reagan would come home from school and she was so bothered by it, she would be weepy. She'd be tearful. Now, now looking back, an opportunity had arisen to me that I missed, and I'm just sharing this so that you don't miss it too. What I could have and should have done is looked her in the eyes and said, sweetheart, this is what I'm, I'm sensing. Jesus was very caring for others too. In fact, there's all these wonderful stories in the Bible where Jesus would leave the 99, he would tell these stories, right? The 99 sheep because one was lost and he would go find the other one. Jesus was always teaching his people of how to care for the one that's left out. Reagan, I see that in you and I want to encourage that in you. But know this, if you decide to do that, you can expect what happened to Jesus to happen to you too. That you'll be mocked, you'll be made fun of, you'll, you'll be ridiculed as well. What I could have and should have done was come alongside this beautiful thing that God had placed inside of her and encouraged it and warned her what might come from it. To strengthen her, to buttress underneath this character trait that I believe looked just like Jesus and to help her. And I didn't do that. And I think the ridicule came and the mocking came to her and her, her little soft heart that was so caring for others got harder and harder and harder. Hear me, she's still a sweet girl. I love her, I love her. But there was something that, that we lost in that. Th there are people here who, whose children um, are, are like that who have a desire to, to maybe not do video games, right? They're not in, indoor people, they're outdoor people. And when they're on the soccer pitch, right, they're, they're not only athletic and scoring goals, but, but she's like the leader on the team. All of the other players follow your daughter. And we have to take this opportunity given to us by God, I would argue, and say, listen, you're a leader. People will follow you and you and just talk about Jesus, how he chose 12 disciples. It's like a team, if you will. It's like a sports thing. They had jerseys and everything. And you just tell them that, that, that they're going to follow you. And so you as a leader, you must live like a, to a higher standard. You must show them right things. So all of that. Here, is anybody picking, picking up what I'm putting down here? That we have an, a wonderful opportunity to teach our children this stuff. Because God could have said, let's just leave Jesus at the temple and let the religious people do the religious stuff. But he didn't. And so Jesus goes home to Nazareth with his family. And it says that he increased, verse 52 again, says that he increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. And that's the end of that story. I wanna draw our attention to two verses right before this story. So the story that takes place right before Jesus at, at the age of 12 getting um, left behind and uh, being found in the temple, Jesus had already is, has gone to the temple when he was young. He was about six or seven days old, I think. And they, his parents, Mary and Joseph, took Jesus to the temple and they presented him to the Lord. Okay, you can read about this in the earlier part of Luke chapter two. It says they presented him there and there's Simeon there, there's Anna there, there's a bunch of cool stuff that happened there. But, but notice this in verse 39, it says this, and after they performed everything according to the law of the Lord, after they presented him to, to the Lord, they returned to Galilee 
and, and went to their own town of Nazareth. So Mary and Joseph are going back to Nazareth with the baby Jesus. And what's it say in verse 40? And the child grew and he became strong and he was filled with wisdom and the favor of God was upon him. What I want to leave us with, and maybe this is a point of prayer for us, he learned to do those things from his family. He learned to do those things from his parents. Isn't that awesome? I'm not scared of you. <laughs> I need to see the eyes of all the fathers, please. If I could just look at the dads for a moment. Some of you need to hear this. Um, you've, you've made some mistakes. You've made some mistakes. You, like I admitted earlier, I, I could have done something a little differently and I didn't. And the Lord, the Lord knows that. I know you know that. <laughs> um, but I want to encourage you in the Lord that you get opportunities to do it again. My favorite thing to say as a, a Christian, as a Christian dad to my children is, um, dad screwed up. I'm sorry. And I'd like to, a do-over. I'd like to try it again. So dads, look at me. You've made mistakes, 100%. We, we all have. But you, you get more opportunities to do this again. What I'm asking the Holy Spirit, what I've been praying for all morning, uh, praying for you guys all morning, is that God would awaken you to this role. And, and I'm not talking just um, elementary students. Dads, if you have kids that are in their 20s, 30s, or even young adults, you still have a voice in their life that you, you have no idea the, the way God has wired dads to be able to speak to their sons and their daughters. It is unique and special. So dads, hear me. You still have an opportunity. Are we still friends? <laughs> For the time being, we're still friends. Yes. All right, well, I wanna pray for us and I know the, the band's gonna come back out and we're going to um, sing a little bit more. I just want you guys to be encouraged because when I read this story, I was just blown away at how much um, emphasis the Bible puts on the family, that puts on the family. So anyways, you guys are amazing. Family Sunday is incredible, would you agree? Hey, we could do this real quick while we wait for the band. Um, a, a few families, couldn't find space in here earlier, so they actually went down to the cafe and they're sitting downstairs listening right now. Can you stomp on the floor real hard so they can hear us? <laughs> All right. Oh, well done, kiddos. Well done, Chandler. Well done, everyone. <laughs> so I, um, that's our way of saying thank you for giving up your seats so the families could sit in here. We know it gets a little crowded in here when we do Family Sunday. Um, but I don't know about you, but my heart is overjoyed. I, I am so blown away with the families in this church. I'm so thankful that you guys call Renaissance home and you worship with us. So let's pray together. Lord, thank you for our time. Thank you for everything that you do, Lord. You are amazing. We love you. And parents, we lift our children up to you, Lord. Like Hannah, who prayed desperately for a son, and Samuel came and she dedicated him to the Lord. Lord, we give our children back to you. We 
We know that they belong to you. We will raise them, shepherd them, train them, help them, encourage them. But ultimately, Lord, we know that you have a call and a purpose for their lives. And just like Jesus saw it at 12 and was compelled to move into it, God, we pray by power of the Holy Spirit that our children right now would feel a compulsion. They would feel a calling from God himself and that we would come alongside them and encourage them into it, that we would not be naysayers nor mockers, but we would be the, the edifying voice of the Lord, encouraging them to pursue this crazy thing that God's called them into. Lord, we ask that this generation of children be a counter-cultural generation, that they would show a different way of living, that they would swim upstream, so to speak, that they would look different, they would think differently, and they would worship Jesus fully. We pray these things by the power of the Holy Spirit. We ask God that we be a church who helps train up these children, who helps shoulder the load with the parents, not superseding the parents, not taking away their responsibility, but coming alongside with the parents and helping them, helping them, Lord God. We ask that you would make us a church who carries the weight of parenting with one another, that single moms could find comfort here, that we would help them. That parents who don't know how to do this because they didn't grow up in a church themselves. They didn't have parents who helped them and they need help. Lord, cause us to be the church that will lead them and help them. Lord, we surrender everything to you. We thank you for your son, Jesus. And it's in his mighty name we pray. And everyone says, kids, everyone says, amen. Amen. Thanks for joining with us today. We would love to pray for you and make a connection with you. So please check out the Church at Home page at rendicator.org. Here you can ask questions, request prayer, find past messages and podcasts, or support Renaissance through online giving. We can't wait to hear from you. 